Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as usual, for the next 20 minutes or so, you'll hear from us on three topics that we consider to be important at this moment in and around the hotel and investment space. And we're starting by taking a look at an allied buildings with beds niche. That's the business of co-living. It does seem that uh, the co-living niche is starting to grow up. Um, There's a kind of second generation uh, style of projects coming to the market now um, but more importantly it, it's, a, it's a niche that's attracting more and more investors and a new report recently out from Savills notes that the momentum is really building there are more and more projects coming on but more interestingly they surveyed a whole raft of European investors who reckon they're going to be spending more and more on co-living projects in the future um, and Savills puts a number of uh, 2.6 billion euros over the next three years so um, some of the people we're speaking to about co-living have pointed out that it's a bit perhaps where where serviced offices were perhaps 20 years ago you still have to explain what co-living is to people um, who are not familiar with the space there are not that many are uh, but however it does appear that more and more are going to get to understand it both on the both on the delivery side and uh, on the consumer side uh, because it does answer a need for not just the younger generation but uh, people of various generations to uh, have a a small compact and less expensive place to stay in a city centre while they're while they're working and not encumbered by families um, uh, kids uh, mountain bikes all the paraphernalia of family life so um, all set fair um, and lots more money coming into this I think you're completely on the money Chris just be talking about the definition of it because I think this is it's its biggest challenge um, it, it, it's sort of simultaneously illogical as a subsector but also it seems to make perfect sense <laughs> I mean to that latter bit the perfect sense uh, it sits in the sweet spot between residential and hotels and it sort of there's this all this offering the best of both um, strong demand from people seeking residential accommodation but you've got much stronger yields um, you know on from uh, more parallel to the short-term accommodation world um i think the challenge is however that it it does appear something of a stopgap in terms of uh, what it is um it, it really i mean you could argue it's grown up because we haven't got a properly functioning residential market now i think if you were a booster of co-living you'd say we will never get a properly functioning residential market it's simply too hard to ever get there but there's no question that right now um in residential we have uh, um sort of the, the the mother of all storms um going on and um it, it, it's deeply dysfunctional and we've clearly got a, a very real issue where uh, supply has failed to keep up with uh, growing demand um now i think i suspect um that politicians are going to have to step in and do something about that and then you know where does co-living head within that and i think that's one of its vulnerabilities is this um uh exposure to uh 
politics um, and I think this is a big problem with it um, and it, 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 you know when, when we've looked at uh, co-living in the past where we did something on a scheme up in Manchester if you recall a, a year or two back Chris mm -hmm. and you dug out some of the planning bits around it and uh, the opposition from Manchester Council um, was around you know that you had councillors talking about ra rabbit hutches um, <laughs> and things like this yeah. um, and I think that is a very real concern um, and I think it's a meaningful concern because uh, you know we think back to where we were in the you know the grand vision of say Le Corbusier and how we were all going to have vertical living and um, it was all going to be hunky-dory um, but then actually what we ended up with were these grim tower blocks and I think there is a there is a concern by planners that this is where we're going to you know planners and local politicians that we may repeat those sort of mistakes if we just let this rip as it were um, and you know and I think that's a very real possibility because I think you know whilst there are many very good uh, decent uh, co-living operators out there there if you're not careful with the regulatory environment you will have cowboys who go out there and exploit it um, to build these rabbit hutches I think um, one of the things I found interesting in the Savills report was the idea that this isn't just something on offer for for people who uh, are sort of uh, have above average incomes. Um, they were saying that if you look at things uh, for sort of all in price, that is, you you look at everything that's costed um, and accounted for under the price of a. Um, a, a co living offer, um, actually, it's cheaper than other comparable private rental sector accommodation so the traditional private sector rental accommodation uh, I find that a little bit of a stretch um, to get to that I'm sure Savills will be able to you know demonstrate the numbers to, to, to support their um, assertion but uh, I mean I do think there's an element here where you've got you know lots of stuff included which you could price in such as your gym and your concierge and all that kind of thing um, I'm just not sure people want to buy it that way and I think people want to buy it on an ad hoc basis not everybody wants to have the accommodation locked in with their gym membership or their you know their concierge piece perhaps more so with the concierge but there are other aspects of you know co-living in terms of shared space and stuff which perhaps they might not want to see lumped in um, um, and, I, and, I, and I think in many ways, I think what co-living speaks to is this need to have uh, buildings where you have multi-uses in the building, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be under one umbrella. So I, I guess what I'm kind of arguing here is that you have a bottom-up rather than top-down approach if you see what I mean um, in terms of how it's delivered so I in, in to, to my mind I, I'm you know in some ways I think there are better solutions than having it under this you know this all-encompassing co-living um, umbrella um, and I do think there are very valid concerns about room sizes here um, which will come into play so um, you know I, I think there's a lot potentially that it, where it can work but uh, I think where it will work and does work and is effective um, it's a very very small niche and I don't see it getting particularly big. Now we're going to talk about what's going on in the airline sector because uh, airlines probably had it even worse than hotels 
during the pandemic with lockdowns and so on because um, uh, they couldn't just sort of um, have their their airplanes running on tick over they actually had to mothball them and uh, uh, and has taken quite a lot of time and effort to get them all back in the air and start uh, the international airlift as demand has, has returned but uh, it's coming back coming back strongly and um, the uh, the airlines are uh, responding uh, variously um, some well some less well um, and uh, fortunately are making money uh, because they've been uh, quite sensible in a bit like the hotel sector pricing to uh, earn a decent return um, as we had a bit of a dive into this sector one of the interesting things that emerged was that actually the the sector is is like like the hotel sector it has got lots of things in common with the hotel sector but one key point is is the whole concern about who is selling your product do you sell your product direct does it go through uh, third parties otas and the like uh, and therefore looking ahead who owns the customer journey and uh, who's holding the customer's hand and inviting them to come back and maintain the loyalty connection and all that sort of good stuff so um uh, very much uh, a lot in common with the hotel sector as airlines um, start well they're, they're, they're currently very busy getting back up to full capacity as best they can juggling all the issues with getting planes back in the air backlog of orders of new planes sorting out the costing on fuel price which has jumped all over the place um, but as I say longer term uh, that whole worry about who owns the customer yeah i'm <clears throat> gonna just leave you having mentioned who owns the customer but i, I think just go back uh, a step before that and um, just ask the question why have airlines struggled so much to get back to pre-pandemic lockdown levels of capacity um I, I just don't understand why it's taken them so long um yes they've got staffing issues yes they've got issues at airports and yes there's air traffic control issues but <clears throat> I would have thought all of these were to an extent surmountable and some of the better operators have surmounted them and I think you looked at in your piece Chris Ryanair mm -hmm. and um, I mean a quite incredible level of recovery they're way above where they were uh, pre-lockdown um, and they're adding 20 million passengers a year over the next three years now you know there's clearly no lack of demand here to, to fly um, people want to fly um, somehow some airlines and it's noticeable that they are the uh, well, sometimes called the legacy carriers the, the state-owned mm -hmm. carriers which have been slowest to come back and they've really struggled now um, it's tempting to say well this is down to the government control and the you know the sleepy kind of public sector attitudes to things and the, you know I don't there's probably a bit of that but I, I'm not entirely sure why um, but one thing is sure though the profit margin is you know um, going up and part of me thought well gosh you look at what's happening here they've they've kept capacity deliberately low because they're trying to condition us to paying more for airfares to improve profitability and I think there's a factor here but even though airfares have gone through the roof I mean try booking especially in business class my goodness it's expensive um, but uh, uh, um, but net margin is still tiny according to the um, airline industry body IATA um, talking about 1.2% um, so, you know, unfortunately, I think there's probably more to come in terms of the, the airfare increases and even Ryanair are not talking about cutting prices quite as much as they, they used to. So, uh, uh, you know, they'll carry on adding 
you know these millions of extra passengers which is good news from a hotel uh, perspective because obviously you know we need that that's the main source of uh, customers to hotels um, but if they're spending more on air travel that probably means they're going to be wanting to to trade down now the other thing that comes to this is this whole issue which we've touched on um, a few times which is around business travel and what's going on there um, so we talked about uh, business class travel and that is remarkably expensive right now um, you know you used to pre-pandemic you you were able to book a flight a business class flight there were a few brokers out there and you know book far enough ahead you could get a bit of a cheapie that's no longer the case you know they are full fat sort of you know um, rack rate if you like uh, um, uh, fares now in business class um, now maybe that's been a contributor to why big business in particular has been a bit slow coming back to traveling again um, Morgan Stanley they um, did a survey earlier this month they surveyed 92 corporate travel man managers with a total global spend of around 5 billion US dollars um, the good news is that the spend is going up um, they reckon 9.4 percent in the second half of this year and up 8.4 percent for all of next year which is pretty good news actually you look at that uplift that's significantly ahead of uh, uh, you know GDP growth although it still leaves us a little bit below where we were nonetheless you know Morgan Stanley did say it, you know these travel budgets were surprisingly robust um, the other data point coming out of that Morgan Stanley survey is that about they reckon about 18% of the meetings that would have been physical pre-pandemic lockdown have now shifted to virtual. They think this might moderate in the next year or two to between 14 and 15%. But what this means uh, from a hotel perspective, if we assume that uh, corporate demand drives around 50% to 70% of hotel industry revenues we're still you know facing a permanent loss of demand of about 10% for the for the hotel business that's a pretty big hit and I'd suggest well it doesn't actually square with the numbers we're seeing in terms of uh, you know what hotels are doing in both in terms of occupancy and rate and particularly rate um, now occupancy is still slightly down but it's coming back very strongly but certainly rate is is incredible and uh, um, so you know that that's counterintuitive that evidence there um, and and as Morgan Stanley says well you know one of the problems here is we're just talking about big business because big business are the only people who are using um, internal travel managers, um, SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises, um, are already anecdotally, according to many hoteliers, spending more on business travel than they were pre-pandemic. And um, you know, when we've reported on the results of uh, um, the big American corporates, certainly they're saying, look, you know, our economy properties are enjoying, you know, full. Um, occupancy from from SME type customers it's just the the bigger customers the bigger businesses which are the the issue um, 
so you know one of the other potential headwinds i think here um in terms of the return of this bigger corporate travel piece is esg but uh, there is good news we're about to touch on esg in the next item but uh, just as we're flagging here what diata has to say on it and they're committing to net zero by 2050 and they reckon they're going to do most of this heavy lifting to get to net zero through uh, sustainable aviation fuel not quite you know, <laughs> um, sure how that precisely works, but they reckon it's um, going to happen. 13% through new technology like electric and hydrogen um, and 19% through offsets and carbon capture. But uh, I, I think it is good news that uh, you know ESG is not going to hopefully significantly curtail air travel um that's good news for the good news for the return of business travel uh, but also good news for resort hoteliers dependent on arrivals by aircraft um so uh, i i think overall the news out of the airline side of things is 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 pretty good for hoteliers it just depends how much uh, of the share of wallets airlines are going to capture relative to hotels um, if they're able to keep pushing up prices as they now are. Now you mentioned ESG and we're getting a raft of uh, ESG reports from uh, various actors in and around the hotel space um, these are becoming more and more of a regular thing now uh, we're still perhaps in the phase where a lot of them are are their first of what will be uh, an annual production and so they're unnecessarily full of uh, waffly words and um, and wishful aims uh, but we are getting some some metrics um, and uh, in, in the UK uh, Whitbread's uh, ESG reports being quite impressive in general terms in, in terms of its um, detail that they go into in the way they're they're measuring their different uh, scope one scope two emissions and so on and so forth um, and you know very much setting already set off down the road they need to travel and um, measuring and calculating how they're getting on as they go um, also took a look at uh, a hotel that's taking shape um, in uh, in Exeter a company called Zeal Hotels who are putting together a net zero hotel which uh, is going to be branded by um, I, one of the IHG brands in due course um, and uh, spoke to uh, one of the guys behind Zeal uh, talking about the the, the complications of uh, um, having to educate planners uh, and those involved in construction and indeed those involved in measuring ESG because uh, when you set out to build a uh, a net zero hotel you know you might for example be avoiding putting in air conditioning deliberately and then guess what huh, you get marked down as <laughs> not being such a good hotel um, then there's other issues to do with the way you get measured for uh, water use uh, well of course if everyone in a hotel wants to have an ensuite bathroom then uh, you get apparently marked down for that as well so um, some some challenges along the way but Zeal is hoping that its first hotel next will be a template for for many more um, and proof that you know you can deliver a hotel for one of the mainstream brands that is uh, ticking all the boxes on the net zero credentials um, uh, one other, one aside from the time I spent going through some of these uh, ESG reports is one does have to be very careful looking out for the green wash and uh, there is a fair <laughs> bit of it about um, 
the favorite one is uh, you know making a big corporate claim for example that you're going to convert all of your fleet to electric vehicles by 2030 well in the uk that's actually effectively a government mandate rather than your choice so um just uh, saying you're going to comply with the law is uh, is not exactly uh, a big deal in green terms so um yeah uh, great to have lots more information great to see companies making more efforts to uh check measure and uh, and demonstrate how they're going to improve uh, the the economic the, sorry how they're going to improve their carbon uh, output year on year. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the cliche that I'd use here um, relates to you know the the ESG journey, and uh, I, I think on, on this ESG journey, um, I'd suggest we're not even at base camp yet. We're still in the camping shop buying the gear for that journey, um, and we're not quite sure exactly where it's heading. Um, just on a point, just to pick up what you've just mentioned Chris about um, it just shows how confusing this whole thing is but the, the law with regard to uh, electric vehicles is that you're not going to be allowed to mm -hmm. buy them anymore so they can still run them so if they're committing to getting rid of them all um, yeah. that's not a bad thing and um, n normally most of these things that they have a turnover on, on their fleets anyway so um, you know if they can't buy them anymore after 2030 they'll probably have to have turned them over by 2033 34 or 35 anyway so you're, you're absolutely right so but but yeah they are slightly ahead of the curve in terms mm -hmm. of the legislative or regulatory curve with that um, I think there are there are two big issues for me with the whole ESG thing um, and this is measuring and politics um, and they are interlinked um, and I think uh, you know to, to win out on the politics side you're going to need data um, which is going to come from the measuring piece um, and I think uh, you know the, the measuring piece is pretty darn complicated as anybody who dives into this um, will um, very quickly realize um, aside from the acronym soup you have which I'm just about to inflict on the ears of our listeners but uh, um, so I, I, I think the the International Financial Reporting Standards Association I think what they're doing is the most important in terms of they're trying to align um, ESG reporting via their international sustainability standards board um, um, with accounting um, so you've got that financial and aligned ESG piece and I think you know they're making quite good progress on having um, that that established in terms of a top-line structure um, but uh, you know I rather suspect we are uh, many years away from um, a position whereby we're going to look at ESG reporting and say you know that that's as thorough and as meaningful as um, financial reporting I uh, you know a decade plus is my guesstimate of where how long this is going to take now a lot of people are going to poo poo that but I I bet I'm right mm -hmm. <laughs> on that because I think there's so much devil in the detail of this stuff and it's so complicated um, and quite tricky to do it is significantly I'd suggest more complex and straightforward financial reporting um, and just 
dealing with this whole issue of um, what corporate should be doing well I, you know I, I do think that ESG is increasingly going to be seen for what it is which is about regulation and compliance um, it, it is not about saving the world you know that is for the political sphere um, the public sphere it's not for the corporate sphere I would suggest um, and the actual brownie points you're going to get for saving the world um, given the complexity of the politics which we're heading into here um, you know they might not be brownie points as brownie negative points um, if you're not careful um, and really what we want to get to is a world where ESG is, is as exciting as talking about fire codes now i don't think any conference um well, none that i've been to in my 30 years reporting um hotel investment has ever dealt had a panel on um fire codes um and i'd like to get to the point where that's the case with esg because you know it ought to just be there you, you know you're complying with these standards and just get there i think the thing is that ESG is under such a state of in such a state of flux it's undergoing such rapid change um, that we're you know many years away from that and this aligns with you know my views in terms of how long it's going to take to get to be able to measure this thing properly this is not a reason to say corporates should just shrug their shoulders and abandon it because I think they have to engage with this and they need to work out where the regulation is heading or at least take a guess on where the regulation is heading because I think Whitbread was you report mm -hmm today um, in this in this issue chris i mean what they're doing makes absolute sense from a shareholder perspective because it's aligning the company with probably where we're going with uh, um future esg regulation and it and it what it's doing is bringing the uh, estate um up to speed and means it's not going to get clobbered um in by future taxes and so forth in terms of where it's positioned so I think it makes a lot of sense for Whitbread to do this this heavy lifting now um, and 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 but it won't always be the case and there will be a lot of businesses where they say well actually it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to get engage in this right now we will do it down the track but maybe technology is going to improve um, maybe things are going to you know um, you know we'll be in a financial position where we're, um, um, we're better placed to do it but it, it, it's a it's a judgment call and you've got to balance the the benefits with the costs of it um, and I think this is one of the unfortunate things about this whole ESG debate that it's very difficult to have an adult adult conversation and all too often particularly from the proponents of the ESG agenda you know it, it sounds more like the arguments of a petulant teenager than it does the arguments of, of um, you know, proper grown-up business people um, and we need to be a little bit careful here and we need to have sensible numbers from where we can make these cost-benefit analyses and say well look this makes sense to do this we need to be doing this governments are going to um, take us down this route um, as it should be governments not corporates making these decisions ultimately in terms of where they should be heading um, and corporates can you know the actual upside to a corporate of being ahead of the curve um, it can be strong if if it means that they're going to be you know that they're not going to have um, heavier taxes or or you know be forced to comply in a in a hurry kind of thing um, but it, it's quite a difficult nuanced area of debate um, you know and I think you, you re, in your report Chris you talked about mm. science-based targets um, and I think science-based targets are are a wonderful 
you know wonderfully sensible sounding thing um but i think having just gone through the covid lockdowns i think increasingly we've realized that science yeah. is <laughs> not always what it, <laughs> no um and scientific diktat is not a great place actually always um and uh, you know scientists get it wrong and any scientist worth a salt will admit that science is a, about argument it's not about diktat um and so we don't want to you know esg to get into this diktat kind of um place so um the future proofing piece thumbs up um and it can make good financial sense but equally there's often could be you can make a case why well, you don't want to do this right now so um what we do want to have is more effort on the measuring side um and more sensible politics um i've got much more faith on having um more progress on <laughs> measurement than i have on more. okay now we're going to do our five star no star awards for this week and five stars this week go to hilton uh once again announced uh, as top dog in the uh, annual brand finance uh, report uh, Hilton's brand is judged to be worth uh, about 11.7 billion US dollars it's slipped just 2% um, year on year um, down due to the pandemic but still streets ahead of its nearest uh, rivals in terms of value um, so uh, and, and out of the top 10 there are no less than 4 Hilton brands or sub brands um, featuring in those top 10 values yeah it's a, it's a very impressive performance indeed um and and, and it is the usual array of um, the global majors although interestingly shangri-la are in at number six which shows uh, the small companies can perform or comparatively small companies can perform very strongly as well if you've got that that brand okay, equity no stop. just when you thought you're out of the woods in terms of the the interest rate rises um we're going to have to say no stars for the ongoing worries about just how high um, and how long the current uh, increases in interest rates are going to last um, so we're now at a point where we're talking about interest rates above what we were fearing back in the autumn this is in the uk context above what we were fearing back in the autumn um, of last year when we had the ill-fated uh, liz trust government um, government borrowing costs are now above where they were um, and this is you know a deeply unsettling period and I think it's going to require um, a little bit more clarity on how high and for how long we're going to be enduring um, high interest rates it's interesting because uh, just as an aside um, on, on you know the, 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 the what one of the big growing concerns here is not just about how difficult it's going to make it from a commercial um, investment proposition um, which is undoubtedly the case um, but it's also in terms of how much is going to impact consumer demand there's growing concerns that we were having a delayed impact from these rising uh, mortgage interest rates um, and as people come off their fixed rates they're going to get really clobbered and we've got lots of scare stories at the moment in the media about how bad it's going to be and i think i think a point worth making is um people say oh well it's only like the 1990s when we had you know double digit uh, mortgage interest rates the only problem is people have leveraged up to such an extent um under the sort of you know 
decade plus of zero or close to zero interest uh, rate environments that you know the amount of debt they're carrying is so much higher than than the level of debt they they carried uh, um, in the 1990s so potentially the impact could be significantly worse and I think so that's that's really we'll say goodbye for, for now